Verona, Italy, I'm Adam Peter. And right beside you in Verona, Italy, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is Vine Bear. So, Zach, we actually are in the same room together for the first time ever. Spoiler warning. <laughs> and we're here because uh, we're at the Wine to Wine Conference, which is an incredible uh, wine business conference that is put on by Stevie Kim and her uh, team that also put on Vin Italy and a bunch of other incredible events here in Verona throughout the year. Uh, they're probably the best promoters of Italian wine in the world. Um, you know, Stevie's for sure a powerhouse when it comes to um, ensuring that Italian wine is, is well known and uh, sells well all over the world. I mean, this she travels probably more than anyone I've ever met. But being here, I don't want to have a boring business conversation. Uh, that, that's no fun for the listeners. But I thought because of what we've been hearing at the conference, it could be fun uh, for this episode to really talk about just the state of the Italian wine in general and what is challenging about Italian wine. Yeah, and I got my start in wine, in Italian wine. So I've always been a, one of these people who... I guess, gets Italian wine. Um, it's it's where I got, like I said, I got my start. So there's a way in which the complexities and idiosyncrasies of Italian wine just feel natural to me. But I know from working with uh, my staff, from certainly talking to guests and things like that, that Italian wine can be deeply confusing. Um, and I think there are probably two major reasons for that. Your first is there are just an insanely large number of grapes. Like you ask people and you hear, oh, you know, they have a thousand different native varietals, 1,200, 1,800, you know, some fucking ridiculous number. (laughs) And it's like, okay, for one, that number's a little bit bullshit because, yeah, they have 1,800 grapes, but, you know, 1,750 of them are grown in, like, you know, two acres in random little corners of Italy. Like, there are still only maybe, you know, 50 or so grapes that matter in any real way. And even within that, there are the grapes that really matter, and then there are the grapes that sort of matter. So that said, there is a lot of there's a lot of uh, a lot of varietals out there, and most of them are only in Italy, so they don't have a global presence the way that say the the classic French varietals do. You know, people are not generally growing Nebbiolo or Trebbiano in other parts of the world, which I always think is so interesting. You know, like. The French are just such good marketers, <laughs> which I think is why this wine-to-wine conference exists in Italy to sort of push the Italians to be great marketers as well. They're amazing with fashion, right? Like, I mean, my suit that I'm wearing right now is made in Italy. But it's, a very, like, it's a very nice suit, by the way. Thank you. But, uh, yeah, the French, I think, were, are just – they were so good at spreading their grapes around the world. And why are we not drinking Nebbiolo, you know, grown in California? Nebbiolo, as you know, is my favorite grape. Mm-hmm. You know, why, why are we not drinking more Pinot Grigio from the Finger Lakes of, uh, you know, of New York? Why is it Riesling and Chardonnay and Merlot? You know, it's crazy. It really is. Well, I think there are two reasons. I think, you know, the marketing aspect of it. Uh, has a lot to do with it. And I mean, I'm not going to turn this into a boring-ass history lesson, um, but what I will say is that a lot of this has to do with the fact that after the fall of the Roman Empire, Italy was a backwater in Europe for a long time. You know, Italy was not, with the exception of obviously like the Florence under the Medici's during the Renaissance and a few other parts, you know, Genoa, things like that have been at times in uh, European history very powerful. In a Italy's never been a unified country, or only real, obviously oh, very recently, recently yeah. has been hasn't been a unified country and hasn't had a global market presence in many categories, not just wine, um, until the 20th century and 21st century. And as a result, France just got there first, right? France 
France was a global power. <laughs> France, you know, France was a cultural power in a way that Italy was not. And as a result, like they just their grapes are everywhere. Their food is everywhere. And even if the Italians will tell you that Catherine de Medici is the one who brought actual fine cuisine to France, no one really cares at this point. So it's definitely a, a situation where there's there's a historical challenge that Italy is still struggling to overcome. And I think the other challenge is in in especially for the American marketplace, and I do think this is changing, and I would love your thoughts on this, Adam. Italian wine, even more than French wine, has to be had with food. 100%. It's just not, you can't, with a very few exceptions, you cannot sit down with a, even a very nice, very good Italian wine and fully enjoy it unless you are also eating. And the Italians, even more than the French, consider wine food. I mean, oh, it's, yeah, completely. It's, it's, it's a part of the – it goes on the table the same way that, you know, your butter dish, your salt and pepper shake. It's not, it's not a, a thing, an ancillary thing. It is a part of the meal fundamentally. But in America, many wine drinkers have a glass of wine after work. They have a bottle of wine while they're watching Netflix. You know, it's not a necessarily only with food thing. So that said, Adam, I know – you know, you were you're mentioning this during your uh, presentation here to tie things back to our locale a little bit. That that you are noticing that that people are that that a lot of uh, the our listeners and and the fine pair readers are interested in food and wine. And in that regard, as a pairing item, Italian wine is is tremendous as a as yeah a tool. I think that's what's interesting. So you know, we we surveyed the fine pair readership you know last year, and eighty seven percent of you listeners and readers told us that you, you actively pair wine with food, which I think is amazing. And I think one, one thing that was pretty fun to learn, uh, you know, this trip to Italy is obviously like Italy's always become, has always been very well known for their aperitivo hour, right? Mm-hmm. But what was said to me today, which is really amazing, was Italians choose the aperitivo hour that they go to not based on the wines that are being served, but based on what food is being served. That the food is much more important and the wine is the condiment, mm-hmm. right? So am I going to a place that serves really amazing pizza for aperitivo? Am I going to a place that serves, you know, canned fishes and, you know, anchovies and sardines? And then, okay, they will then, they know have a good wine list, but the food is paramount. And that is very different than the French. For sure. Yeah, and and it's... It's a very kind of uh, novel concept for a lot of um, American drinkers, I think. It's that, super different for me. It's like, our happy hour means $3 Bud Lights and let's get slosh. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, their happy hour is let's go have some light bites after work and maybe a glass or two of wine. Yeah. Also, the Italians really drink wine in a very different way, I find, than, than especially Americans. Right? They're not drinking in the action of really getting drunk. Like once the food is gone, the wine goes away as well, mm-hmm. which I think is very interesting. Whereas in America, we'll drink, maybe have some food and then drink some more. Yeah. Um, but there are, besides the grapes, I mean, there, I think there's a lot of challenges with Italian wine. The food being one, I think uh, just the regions being another, not understanding where these, you know, what, what grapes these wines are made from. Mm-hmm. Right. So I love Nebbiolo, but like early on in my uh, wine world experience. I didn't know, you know, 10 years ago that Barolo was made from Nebbiolo. I thought Barolo was another wine because Barolo is the wine that everyone talks about. I think, you know, that's a challenge for France as well, but something that I think is even more challenging for Italy. The only strength that really Italy has when no one can touch them right now, and I'm curious what you think about this as a sommelier, is Prosecco. For sure. I mean, I think, you know, Italy... What's, what's crazy and what's interesting to me is, like, we think about Italian wine, and I think a lot of people, myself included, think of, you know, whether it's a Tuscan villa or you think of um, a producer in the hills of, of Piedmont making Barolo or Barbaresco. But, like, 
Italy also has some crazy large producers of wine. And certainly Prosecco is a category where that's very obvious. There's a few other categories where it's true. And, um, and it's because, I mean, even more than France, all of Italy makes wine. And there, there's vines everywhere. Yeah, there is not a corner of this country that you cannot find grapes in. And I mean, part of it is because you know, from the north where it's cooler and, and better suited to uh, high acid white wines and sparkling wines, all the way down to the south where it's very hot in many places and is, is good for producing sort of big, full-bodied reds. Um, there's a lot of diversity, but there's there's nowhere in the country where grapes won't grow. And um, I think you're right. You know, it's it's an incredible place to produce. I think quite good, but also very affordable sparkling wine. And you see that with Prosecco, which is obviously this huge part of the market. But I, I also think it's an area um, where you see uh, you see it in uh, a wine like Lambrusco. Uh, so sparkling red and, and to some extent uh, rosé wines um, in Lombardy. And you see it, you know, we did our, our bubbly podcast, so I'm not going to repeat everything yeah. I said there. But there are a lot of great, great sparkling wines in Italy. I think the other place that it really shines is in... Um, a sort of very approachable, earthy, savory style of red wine. So um, you look at most of what comes out of of Tuscany made from Sangiovese, whether it's Chianti Classico, uh, or if you're going to look a little higher end, Vino Noble di Montepulciano or uh, Brunello di Montalcino, um, and even into uh, Abruzzo uh, with uh, Montepulciano di Abruzzo, different grape, same name, confusing. So confusing. Again, that's probably the most confusing thing, I think, for American (laughs) drinkers is Montepulciano di Abruzzo compared to Vino Noble di Montepulciano. Like, what? Come on. Yeah, well, you can blame <laughs> history for that. Um, but what I would say is it's also Italy, in my opinion, and this is like a big ask, but I'm going to ask it of you listeners anyhow, is kind of a country that requires that you take some chances, that you a little bit say, okay, maybe I don't 100% know what's in this wine. Maybe I don't 100% have a, an exact palate um, reference for whether it's Sangiovese, Montepulciano di Bruzzo, Nebbiolo in Piedmont or other parts of northern Italy. But... I know that I like the general paradigm of Italian wine. And while there are certainly wines in Italy that do not conform to that paradigm, that are not necessarily more savory than sweet, more earthy and spicy than um, sort of smooth and round, most of them are in one way or another like that, especially on the red side. Yeah. And if you like that kind of wine, the kind of wine that I think pairs beautifully with a lot of different foods, you you can go wrong, but it's a little bit hard. If you if you are in a place, if you're in a shop, in a restaurant, whatever, with a decent wine list and uh, someone you trust maybe helping you make those decisions, um, the wines just have a, a savory and, uh, to me, just a, a, a liveliness to them that is uh, yeah, really, really fun. I agree. I, I think there's just something really special about Italian wine. And... I know that that also is one of its challenges that this you hear a lot. I I think it's actually it's such an insult, even though I think we all mean it as a compliment. When you hear people talk about the differences between French and Italian wine, you always hear people say Italian wines are more rustic. And I feel like that's kind of a you know what I mean? It's it's sort of like it's like, oh, maybe like what do people mean by that? You know what I mean? Like, are you are you? Is it a positive that you're saying or is it sort of a, well, the French are very polished and they, you know, they make really pristine wines, but Italian wines are more rustic. I don't, I don't know, but I hear that all the time. Yeah. Well, I think, again, this is a little bit, uh, it's like equal parts history and marketing, right? So, I mean, again, you think about Italy and we think about a country of, of the countryside, you know, I mean, obviously France is, has lots of farmland and lots of countryside too, but like Paris, yeah, you hear, you hear France, you think Paris, you think um, yeah, high fashion, you think design, you think just 
a certain uh, a worldliness. You know, Parisian is a is a concept that we you know it just def- you know Paris is one of the world's great cities, and I would argue Rome is also an incredibly. I completely un- would argue that, yeah. But Rome is also we think of you know most of us think of Rome and we think of antiquity, we think of history, we right? Think of, we think of the Roman empires we were yeah. discussing earlier. Or we yeah. think of you know the Vatican, we think of the church. We don't necessarily think about Rome as the seat of of high culture, and and in some ways that's true, and in some ways that's not true, but. I, you think about cuisine, right? We think of French cuisine. We think of, you know, elevated cuisine. We think of very fancy dishes. You think of Italian food. You think of pasta, right? You think right. of simplicity. And I would argue that there's a beauty and a and a true nobility to simplicity in, in things like food where if you can take three or four ingredients and make an exceptional dish, that is the hallmark of, of great cooking to me, not an elaborate, many hours, you know, incredibly um, involved production to produce something that is, you know, many, many um, flavors all wound together. And, yeah. and French cuisine is not always that, for sure. But as as regards wine, I think there is, there's a historical element wherein, you know, Italy was never, or until recently, has not been a developed wine nation in the way that France has. You know, the French have been selling wine overseas for centuries. And as a result, you have to, like, figure out how to make your wine last when it goes on a ship for, you know, a couple of weeks to the U.K. or whatever to be to be sold there in a way that Italian wine, for most of its history, with almost no exceptions, was sold and consumed very, very locally. So, yeah. you know, there's there's a the rusticity comes part from that historical tradition and winemaking techniques that have not, in most cases, changed much over the last couple hundred years, but also from just an, uh, an inherent embrace of... Um, the place that that is Italian. You know, the French love to talk about terroir, and you and I have discussed terroir. And, yes, we have. Uh, maybe our my own sort of <laughs> lack of belief in that term in many ways. But it's really the place to me where you know, fuck France for a minute here. Like where you really see the idea of terroir is in is in uh, Italy. And unfortunately, the Italians have co opted the term, so I can't give you a, a fancy Italian term Italian that means the same yeah. thing. But what I will say is, like in Italy, you see that. The the way the wines are made, the the grapes that are grown is so specific to the place. The foods that it's paired with, even if they're similar to something, the next village over are different. The dialect is different. Yeah, it's fucking maddening if you are not Italian and you don't understand. I mean, it's hard for me when I come visit, but it has a beauty to it. It, it is has, super cool. It has a you know if you are if you do get interested in it, you know it's it, it, Italy is like is a country that you know you kind of end up just losing yourself in. And and it's it's beautiful, but it's also, of course, um, a little terrifying. It is cool. Though. I mean, like, even, you know, last night when we were out to dinner and we're at, you know, this amazing, amazing wine wine restaurant and the pasta dishes, there's, you know, pasta made with Amarone because, uh, you know, Verona is in the Veneto and Amarone is very famous here. And there's risotto made with Amarone. And this idea that these dishes exist here to pair with these specific wines, I think is a, yes, that also somewhat exists in France, but it's a very Italian idea. Um, that is what I think makes these wines so special. I also think, as you were saying earlier, the challenge, but the but the real amazing thing about Italian wine is that they are so affordable. And there are bottles that are just as age-worthy as stuff you're getting from France. But, you know, we sometimes say, like, well, but is it because this is a bottle that's $30 compared to a French bottle that's $100? But, I mean, they're making really beautiful wines. Even, and this is crazy, even the wines they're making that are super Tuscans that are with French varietals. Yep. Even the French Accorda they're making, and we discussed this on the Bubbly Podcast, too, that are champagne-style wines with French varietals. There's something about those wines when they're made in Italy that just makes them 
really, really special. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like with the super Tuscan thing, so wine's made from Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, to some extent Cabernet Franc and Syrah in Tuscany. Basically Bordeaux-style wines. Yeah, exactly. But there's actually a lot. We think about them as having come into the market in the 1970s, but those grapes have been in Tuscany in some way for uh, 150 years. It's just... They were, you know, maybe used in very small percentages in many cases, or they were, you know, their wine wasn't really bottled and sold and labeled the way it is now for a lot of that time. So it was just grown there because it grew fairly well, um, especially in um, parts of um, of Tuscany that were not necessarily famous for, for wine, like the Maremma and Bulgari. So I agree. Like, there is something in, uh, innately Italian about those wines, even if they're not made from yeah. native Italian grapes. What I will say, too, about Italian wine, and if you think about it, you know, we're, we're here in Italy. So, so there's a certain magic when you, when you do visit. And I, I'm sure that um, some of you listening have been to Italy, have had the experience of whether it's walking into a trattoria and having, um, you know, a beautiful plate of pasta and a wine with it. Or you've, you know, you've been to Cinque Terre and you've stared at the ocean and, and had your glass of wine. Whatever the case may be, those are beautiful experiences. But, of course, hard to replicate at home. Yes. Um, but what I would say is what, what is actually very fun for me about Italian wine, and is and as we were alluding to, is in some way distinctive from French wine in a lot of ways, is that even if you can't come to Verona and have your pasta made with Amarone or your risotto made with Amarone, you can make it at home. And while it's not 100% the same, it is a pretty good uh, replica of the experience. And when you do that and pair it with the, the corresponding wine... It is about as close to taking a journey through a meal as you really can get. And I love that yeah. about Italian wine. It's, to me, so evocative of a place in a way that very a very little other wine in the world is. And it's really cool, actually, to mention that because I know we both like to cook. Uh, I, I find myself pretty often at home making Italian food more than anything else because it is a, a simple cuisine to produce, but it always tastes really amazing. And, you know, I, I don't sit and... I try to replicate lots of French cuisine very often. It's very technical usually. Uh, it can be very difficult. I don't think I've ever made a souffle in my life for fear <laughs> that I'd never be able to do it. So, yeah, but I, I do think there's also, you know, the challenges of Italian wine too are, you know, the same in that because there's so many producers, you know, there can be issues with quality, mm-hmm. right? You know, you can get some amazing Italian producers and then you can get some quality that's not always great or you can get bottles, unfortunately, that finally make it to the U.S. that have something wrong with them because you know, they weren't stabilized in the correct way before they before they came over. So so those are challenges. But I do think, like, just getting a sense, you know, the first wines I fell in love with were Italian as well. There is, I feel like, this Italy coming into its own over the past few years where it's, it's becoming a region, I think, that, that consumers are rediscovering as a place for really fine wine, mm-hmm. uh, for, I don't like to say collectible, but for wine that, you know, can be super special when it's older, uh, that, you know, really does have something to talk about that's not just, hey, we make wine in a very similar style to France, but cheaper, right? Yep. Like, it's not trying to say, hey, uh, we're Australia and we make a lot of Syrah. And, like, if you like the Syrah from the Northern Rome, but you want a little bit uh, juicier style that's cheaper, have Shiraz. Yeah. Like, that's not what's happening here. They're actually saying, like, no, this is these are grapes that have been our village forever, and these are the wines we make from those grapes, even if it's super confusing to us. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Well, it, it is – the other thing that I, I really appreciate about what's going on, on on both sides of it, so, so in terms of the Italian wine production and then to some extent people buying wine in the United States that, that is Italian. So on the Italian side, you are seeing, uh, I think, a really beautiful equilibrium being reached between 
uh, an adherence to tradition and an acceptance of modern winemaking technique. So a lot of the wineries that I visited here are still working with the varietals, in some cases the specific vines that they've been working with for 40, 50, 60 plus years. But they are recognizing that there's that real downside if you, say, get that bottle in the United States and it hasn't been properly um, protected against that travel and it, and it is off. Or just the wine is undrinkable when it's young because it's made in such a harsh way that, that it, you know, what used to be true about wines like Barolo that you had to wait 20 years to even think of drinking them now just isn't true. Those wines are, I think, still very ageable, but they're also being made in a way that makes them a little more approachable in their youth. So you don't have to say, okay, I'm going to buy this bottle and drink it in 15 years because I do that, but I'm a lunatic. Yeah. And so don't, <laughs> and don't model yourself after me. You live yeah. in Seattle, but you have a house? Uh, we, we rent a house, but I find space. So where do you put it? Uh, well, I have a, I, well, we have a, I have a very nice temperature, fairly temperature controlled garage, but I also rent storage space because, again, I am a lunatic. I hopefully a fairly interesting lunatic, but a lunatic nonetheless. And I, think, I got no space. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in New York City, I don't know how you possibly would. I, no. I, I definitely did not collect wine when I lived in New York. Um, and so I think there is um, – so, so the wines are being made in a way that is much more approachable when they are young. But they haven't sacrificed their ageability. And I think what is really cool is – there are there is an Italian wine or an Italian region for almost any wine drinker. Yeah, There's, that is very true. So whether you are like us and you love sort of the um, aromatic complexity and the high acid and tannin and structure of uh, Barolo and Barbaresco, or whether you like something a little bit more uh, savory and meaty in uh, you know a Chianti Classico or Brunello Montalcino, or you like a big bold red wine and you want to drink Primitivo from Puglia yeah. or you want to drink Nero Davola from Sicily or if you like me really truly if you listen to this podcast love white wine Italy is a great place for white wine especially um, if you go beyond um, the obviously very uh, popular but not always super interesting Pinot Grigio and you look at um, Arnais in Piedmont or you look at um, as we had the other night Fiano Davolino in Campania or if you look at um, Suave in this area here in the Veneto uh, there's these incredible range of wines a lot of different styles and more and more they're they're available not just in uh, from one or two producers in most markets but a really strong a really pretty broad range of producers yeah. um, across all those styles. So what can be fun there, too, is, you know, you can find maybe your larger scale production of some of these wines. You know, you can um, enjoy uh, the well-distributed, like uh, you can have Barolo from Fontana Freda, but then you can also find small producers in many markets. Um, and if you if you start out with those um, sort of my, more widely available wines and you find that you like them, there's a lot to explore in the category. And, and I think that is what's really kind of cool and was interesting in talking to some of the people here at Wine to Wine is, you know, these producers and these uh, winemakers understanding that, you know, they have to put their wine in the market. Yes. Um, and in more than one market. You know, we've talked before on the show about about the importance of, if you're a producer, not just being in the big markets, um, but in being in some of the secondary and tertiary markets. I think, too, uh, one thing that's been interesting is the producers here really recognizing that the larger producers are gateway drugs for them, mm-hmm. right? Like that, okay, fine, you know, it can be annoying that a huge brand like Fontana Freda is everywhere, but if that's how people experience Barolo for the first time and then fall in love with Barolo, 
they may find smaller producers. I think that that's like it's a very cool thing to see here that you know the bigger guys aren't the enemy. They're all in, on the same team, which I really think is awesome. And one other thing I wanted to to quickly share because you know it was something that we you taught me at dinner last night, which is this idea that Italian whites actually are really awesome when they're a little bit older. Mm-hmm. You know, so we had a bottle that was, what, five or six years old? Yeah, it was a 2013, so five years old. Yeah, and it was awesome. And I think, again, you know, we have this you know, concept in the U.S. that we should be drinking whites very young and that they should be super crisp and, that, and refreshing, and that's about it. And there's this complexity that came out of the line because it was a little bit older. So you know, I think that's another cool thing for you to do at home is if you see a white wine from Italy that's you know, four, five, six, seven years old, Pick it up, especially if it's under twenty dollars, you know, or twenty or thirty bucks, and 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 try it. And I think you'll see how cool Italian wines can be. And that's not true for all white wines all over the world. No, definitely not. And it's and it's again a great uh, sort of reinforcement of what we were talking about earlier, which is like those wines, though those older whites are um, incredibly. I think delicious, but they definitely, again, need food. They're great with, you know, we were having um, some beautiful prosciutto, and that's an incredibly great pairing is that sort of slightly more unctuous and savory white wine with this incredible rich fatty prosciutto, which now I want to go have again. I really want prosciutto we right have, now. We're, we're recording this instead of eating lunch, so if, you, if the salivation uh, comes through on the audio, I apologize. Yeah, so, I mean, I think at the end of the day, like, I, I'm really excited about – you know, all the potential that Italy has. And I actually think, you know, its challenges are also its strengths. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that there's diversity is hard for consumers, but it's also really amazing for consumers because, as we're saying, there is Italian wine for everyone because of that. And getting to meet all these different producers, you know, these past few days has really helped reinforce that for me. There's really people who are striving to make the best wine they can all over the country. And so because of that, there really is a wine that you can discover that you'll fall in love with from the country. Yeah. And I think, you know, one last thing to note here is I think we've got some really, there's some excellent content about Italian wine on VinePair. So if you do have questions, if you have thoughts or um, if there's things that we haven't covered that you're interested in, that's obviously a great place to start. But you can also, of course, reach out to us. Uh, the email is podcast at vinepair.com. Uh, if you have questions or thoughts on Italian wine or pretty much anything, we're more than happy to read those Absolutely. emails. we got to do something on the flight home. Yeah, exactly. Well, Zach, it's been awesome spending two days in Verona with you. Uh, and let's chat again next week. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to VinePair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vinepair is recorded in New York City at Vinepair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patriot, and the show is produced by Zach Jabal. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grimberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vinepair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.